Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And I guess we don't have anything better. Uh, well, we don't. Although, I have, a, don't. I have enough more to do that I still haven't, and I know people are getting sick of you hearing this. You say this every time. So I won't belabor it, because <laughs> I have a lot more to belabor later in the show. I just haven't had time to get to that audio equipment. And one thing is we're recording so quickly after we recorded our last one because later this week I'm leaving to visit our sister Liz in Oregon. Ooh. And I wanted to get this all edited and scheduled to go up. It'll still go up when it's supposed to. It's September 26 and it'll go up whatever a week from tomorrow is. <laughs> whatever october something yeah october something that's something 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 so anyway but we should probably just like get started right sure do you have a main mini you want to yeah. do oh first? funny you should ask i do and it's a it's a little mini mini it's very mini oh, I did... before that we wanted to mention the gabby petito case although by the time this episode airs yeah by there the time might this... be more information well, first let's talk about the elephant in the room me. <laughs> well, Daisy's in my room and she's pretty uh, so, See, you're supposed to, like, laugh at that, not just take oh. it. Like, yeah. Yes, we agree that white, cute women who are missing mm-hmm. get more attention than minorities. Yes, they do. And other, or maybe even if, like, I was missing since I'm fat and 60 and not cute, maybe Aww, I wouldn't get cute. as much attention. And it's funny because now, like, I've seen on, like, a NBC that they now say that but then they do the same report and one of the things in the report that doesn't really talk it just talks about that poor guy the geologist a young man who's missing which obviously there's something suspicious and the police obviously didn't do anything because he's a young black man but the report says 500,000 people disappear a year although they say go missing but you know I hate that but what they don't say is almost all of them come home Exactly. So it's not like there's 500,000 people who have vanished and have not returned. That said, the huge majority of the ones who don't come back, more than what you'd expect, people of color, Mm -hmm. a lot of them women, but some of them men. And we acknowledge that. We've done, you know, some episodes on people who aren't cute white women. Although mine today is. But Gabby Petito's story is a little different in that, first of all, there's so much video, which isn't an excuse, but it just underlines the issues, and I hope people don't lose sight of the fact that the big issue is domestic violence and control, no matter what color the woman is. And and this is a really well-documented example of that, including the body cam footage, which is over Mm -hmm. an hour long. And I would urge everyone to listen to the Real Crime Profiles episode where Jim Clemente and Laura Richard talk about it and kind of break it down because it's like a textbook case of how police respond to men differently than women. Yes. How, right, how the controlling guy can turn around the narrative so somehow it's the woman's fault. All sorts of things that people may not get if they're just looking at that body And I think that part of the problem uh, was, too, that the officers responding, there were three men, youngish men from what I could see. I couldn't really see the guy whose cam it was. Right. But he didn't sound that old. I don't know how to say this, but... 
I feel like a lot of times the default for guys is to go with the easiest way. And now, I'm yes. sorry, men, if I'm insulting you. Like I, the, the one man who may listen to our show. But yeah. to go, okay, this guy's being friendly and we're all bros here and let's all, like, you know, get along. And this woman is it's hysterical and she right. says she's got mental illness. They need someone that's going to dig a little deeper. Yes. And somebody should have stayed with her and talked with her and not... I just felt like... Sh- right. They're doing all I, the pro-guy stuff with the I guy. I do think that I didn't fault him, the first guy, the one whose body... The second one seems to be more driving the let's just yes. get this done with. And, yes. And kind of the she's the one at fault narrative. Yes. And also, one thing that struck me is... When I first saw that, I said, that guy reminds me of Chris Watts, and I couldn't think of why. Yes. And watching the body cam thing, I realized that why it is, is, first of all, the look on his face, but second of all, because he's the calm, cool, collected one, Mm -hmm. and she's the quote-unquote hysterical, emotional Mm -hmm. woman. You can tell how he's manipulating that, because those guys, those guy cops, don't want to deal with a crying woman either. No, they don't. You know. Especially when the poor thing, I she's so young and just taking the blame for everything and trying to, and I just was like, oh my gosh, so, that somebody had listened to her. But also, she was trying to get her vlog business going. She was looking at this whole thing as an opportunity, and he obviously demeaned it and mm-hmm. put it down, and he even did it to the cops, calling it little, her little mm-hmm. thing and everything. And I could tell the cop was just not getting how she felt or what she was saying. And I know a female cop showed up later, but I feel like a woman, not necessarily, but would have been more likely to catch the subtle undertones of what was going on because you watch that and you realize that he's demeaning her. He's controlling her. The fact that he locked her out of the van should have been a red flag to them anyway. He's trying to force her. Yeah, you can't get in the van now. He's punishing her. Right. Oh, I just wanted us to... Well, why didn't he take a walk? He didn't want her to get her stuff, her phone, anything. You know, just... We'll probably talk more about this when we know more about... Because he's on the run right now, supposedly. Whenever they say on the news, he went to go hiking and blah, blah, blah. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. That was his cover story. No shit. And he probably, if there's video footage of him going in, he knew that that was going to exist. And it reminds me, I think I mentioned this to you a little of, and I can't remember what his name was, the young man in Connecticut, Mm -hmm. the rapist in the 90s, it was a big story, whose family bankrolled him to escape to Europe. Yes, somebody just, we were just talking about that online and somebody told me his name and I now, and I was like, oh, that's I almost, his name. Yeah, Alex they something. They called him the preppy, they the called preppy him the rapist. preppy rapist. Yeah. yeah. His family, Brian Laundrie's family, Gabby Petito's boyfriend, enables him, but we'll talk more about it next time. I think we have a lot going on this episode. Yes, so. we do. And I do have a main mini. Okay. Well, it's, let's hear it's, it. It's a little mini, mini. It's a mini, mini. We still have to play the song. Uh-huh. Oh. Okay. Acting on a tip 
Maine State Police on September 21st recovered the remains of a body in the Lewiston Dump, also known as the Solid Waste Facility, also known as the Transfer Station, but basically it's a place where all the garbage gets dumped, so I'm going to call it the dump. On September 9th, a couple weeks earlier, remains of a body were found in the Belmont, New Hampshire dump, which is about two hours to the west of Lewiston. Those remains were identified as Jessica Lurvey, 28, of Guilford, New Hampshire. Both dumps are run by Casella Waste Systems, although I don't think that's necessarily suspicious because they are a huge landfill company in northern New England and do the majority of landfill operations and transfer garbage transfer operations for most municipalities. There wasn't a lot of information available on either case. The one in Lewiston from September 21st, there's been now five days later, literally nothing. The remains were going to the medical examiner's office and they haven't released any other information on it. My old newspaper, the New Hampshire Union Leader, reported that Jessica Lurvie's body, the one whose remains were found in Belmont, New Hampshire, quote, arrived at the transfer station among the contents of a disposal truck and had been discovered when the contents were being removed and separated. And that's according to the New Hampshire Attorney General's office. New Hampshire Deputy Chief Medical Examiner Mitchell Weinberg did an autopsy, but they haven't released her manner of death pending further testing or any other information. The union leader's story says, An investigation is ongoing, but the death isn't considered suspicious. About mm. about Lurvy, not yes. the main one. Actually, what the press release said, the wording was a little different, is... At this time, there is nothing suspicious about her death. So they're not saying her death... that makes more sense. Right. They're not saying her death isn't considered suspicious. That was just some bad press release rewriting. I'm Mm. not even going to call it reporting. Sorry, (laughs) union leader. But still, I find it hard to believe that when remains are found in the garbage... It's not considered suspicious. I know. That's because not exactly what someone I had to put them there. Jessica Lurvie's obituary has appeared. It said she died unexpectedly mm. on September mm. 9th. She had two kids and a quote unquote fiance. Mm. And the reason I say quote unquote is in my experience in newspapers, people say that when actually they're just partners who live together. And and I used to tell reporters, unless this story is about the wedding, don't use the term fiance. Because they're either married or they're not married. Mm -hmm. And we're not casting moral judgments. It's just a meaningless label. In fact, her name, I looked her up. Her Facebook page was her boyfriend, Matthew Schofield. Her last name on her Facebook page was Schofield hyphen Lurvie. In any case, no one seems to have done a story on who she is how she may have ended up in the landfill, what she was doing with her life before that, or even talked to her family, to which I say, come on, union leader, what the hell? Mm. I've messaged my New Hampshire news chick friends asking what is going on with this story, but haven't heard back, because I just messaged them a little while ago, and they're probably (laughs) all busy. Lurvie and her quote-unquote fiancé, Matthew Schofield, were both charged with criminal trespass, resisting arrest, and breach of bail in June in Guilford, New Hampshire. They were both listed as transient at the time. Oh. And n- none of this is to, again, No, but cast... I wondered when I read it if maybe she if she didn't have a home and she They was may have had... An adult. Uh, uh, right. And that's why I bring it up, because they were listed as transient. Although, I gotta say, the last place I would make a home would be in a dumpster. Yeah. And she still somehow died in it. And I'm not bringing it up with no other information yeah. about this woman to say she had a criminal record. And, of course, they were charged, but we don't know what came of that. And if this were 20 years ago, someone would have found out and written about it in a newspaper. 
Yeah. But this isn't 20 years ago. It's now. So everybody just takes the same press release and does their version of cutting and pasting. And not one newspaper I could find in New Hampshire or Maine has gone any farther. In fact, yeah. I'm the only one who had the information about the arrest. I guess we should start a newspaper. The arrest. I would, but it seems just like a lot of fucking work for no much money. <laughs> you don't get Why bang my yet. head against the wall after I doing know. it for 40 years? So that's my main mini. Okay. And speaking of Maine... Yes. You have a, another story from Maine for I'm us. I'm doing a Maine one. I almost didn't do this because it's in some ways similar to the one you did last episode, Joyce McLean. But two days ago was the 50th anniversary mm. of the disappearance of Kathy Moulton, who's oh. the story I'm doing. And I know a lot of other people have covered this because I've seen it. I have not listened to other podcasts. They're different than ours as far as format and stuff. You know, it might be the same story, but it wouldn't, won't be us doing it. Anyway, so. no one is like us, and for also, better or worse. I don't know why I'm so worried about it. I've done a lot of stories right. that other people have done. And I right. think that the more people that hear about her story, the better. Because this one, I didn't know. I knew a lot about Joyce McLean, and not a huge amount, but I knew more than I knew about Kathy. And I think it's because of Joyce's mom just yes. being out there all the time. Yes. My sources are a book called Kathy Moulton, Missing Slash Endangered. It's by Kevin Cady, who's a former Portland police officer, and Bill Meltzer. My other sources were the Portland Press Herald, the Bangor Daily News, the Boston Globe, the Boston Herald, the Crime Bus Blog. And Portland Monthly from 1988. And I think that's it. There was a lot of other information that just everybody had. So it was Friday morning, June 18th, 1971 in Portland, Maine, when the Moulton family started their summer long vacation. Lyman, known as Roy, his wife Claire, and their three daughters, Kathy Marie, Kimberly, and Pamela, got into a nice new Cadillac DeVille to start their road trip across the United States. Kathy, the oldest, at almost 16, sat behind her father, who was in the driver's seat. Youngest sister, Pam, who was, I don't know how old she was, I couldn't find out, sat in the middle. And Kimberly, who was 12, sat behind Claire, who was in the passenger seat. They kept these positions for the 81 days of their journey. Roy and Claire had talked about taking a family trip for a while, and they figured with Kathy turning 16 that summer, it would probably be the last time she'd want to take part in such an excursion. Hmm. Roy told Claire it was her choice. They could go anywhere she wanted. Claire had never been to the southern states or out west, and she wanted to do a family road trip across the south and southwest to California. Claire planned the itinerary and kept a detailed journal of the trip, and Kathy also kept a journal. Roy closed down his business, quality car sales and service on Forest Avenue in Portland on June 16th to be opened in three months. He was the sole proprietor, so he just shut it down. Mm-hmm. In his mid-40s, Roy was a lifelong auto mechanic who started out in his family business, Moulton's Garage, on Brackett Street in Portland's West End. The family home was on Clinton Street in Portland, in the Daring Highlands area, off Forest Avenue, and out of the urban center. I wasn't able to find out exactly where Roy's used car business was, but it's at South Forest Avenue, so it was likely out in that area. It wasn't downtown. The first day, they drove all the way to Newport, Rhode Island, sightseeing along the way. They drove through, I'm assuming here, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, and were in Lancaster, Pennsylvania by the sixth day of their trip. They spent a couple days in Washington, D.C. before ending up in Luray, Virginia on June 28th, Kathy's 16th birthday. Claire and Roy told Kathy she could have anything she wanted for her birthday dinner, and she chose pizza. 
Hmm. The family shared a large pizza in Williamsburg and had a coconut and raspberry cake, Kathy's favorite, back at the Tioga Motel. Kathy told them it had been the best birthday. On July 14th, the family was in Del Rio, Texas, browsing in a local shop. Kathy fell in love with a hand-tooled reversible leather handbag. She decided that's what she wanted for a belated birthday gift. A month later, the family was in Visalia, California. No, they did not meet the <laughs> uh, Golden State Killer. Eurons. <laughs> Eurons. It was July 29th. Roy and Claire talked about their eldest daughter. They were concerned because Kathy had been smoking cigarettes and asserting her independence. They didn't know if Kathy was acting out or it was just a phase. Kathy had always been a sweet, generous girl who got good grades in school. She was a trusted babysitter in the neighborhood. Claire later said, quote, She was down the street all the time sitting with a friend of the family who was paralyzed. It was amazing how well they could communicate considering he had a speech impairment. She felt if you were nice to other people, they would be nice to you. Kathy also visited the elderly in her neighborhood as well. Monday, September 6, 1971 was Labor Day. The Moulton family arrived home to a sign on a neighbor's front lawn that said, Welcome Home. Roy's friend, Cliff Pike, had a big dinner waiting in the house, and neighbors stopped by to welcome the family back from their trip. It was less than three weeks later, on Friday, September 24th, after school, that Kathy asked her dad to drop her off downtown so she could buy some pantyhose and some thread. Kathy was planning on going to a dance at the YWCA that night, and all her hose had runs. Claire gave Kathy some money for the bus home, and back then, it couldn't have been more than 25 cents because I used to take the bus in the 80s and it was 50 cents, so mm. whatever. Claire also asked Kathy to pick up a couple tubes of toothpaste. Kathy was headed to Porches, Mitchell & Braun, the large department store on Congress Street. Roy dropped her off at the corner of Cumberland Avenue and Forest Avenue in front of the New England Telephone and Telegraph Building. It was about 1.15 p.m. Nothing really explains why it was so early, but one source mentioned she had study hall, so maybe it was the last class of the day and she was allowed to leave school early. The okay. Press Herald most recent article said it was 3 or 4 p.m., but that's not correct. Kathy must have browsed around downtown for a while because it was late afternoon, like 3 or 4, when she stopped by in Starbird Music on Forest Avenue to see her friend Carol Starbird. Starbird Music is still around, and it's still on Forest Avenue, but it's further down the street heading out of downtown. Back in 1971, the shop was very close to Congress Street, so it was very close to porches where she was shopping. Kathy was carrying her birthday handbag that she got for her birthday and inside were her purchases, toothpaste and pantyhose. She was wearing a navy dress and a navy double-breasted coat with brass buttons. Kathy and Carol talked about the dance that night. Kathy told Carol that she was walking home about two miles because she'd spent the money her mom had given her for bus fare. Kathy said she was going to shower and change and get ready for the dance and she'd see Carol there. Kathy left the shop and that's the last time anyone in Portland saw her. One source said that Claire called the police at 6.30 p.m. and they told her she couldn't file a missing person report, but I don't think that's accurate. At 7 p.m. that night, Roy and Claire were worried. Roy called the three local hospitals, Osteopathic Hospital, Maine Medical Center, and Mercy Hospital to make sure Kathy hadn't been in an accident or something and she hadn't been admitted. Finally, Roy decided he was going to go look for Kathy. He drove up to the YWCA on Spring Street, which was actually only a couple blocks from where she had last been seen. While Kathy wasn't there, Roy did run into Carol Starbird, who told him she saw Kathy about 4 p.m., and the two girls had agreed to meet at the dance. Carol assumed that Kathy had just changed her plans or was late for some reason. By now it was 8 p.m., 
Roy headed over to the Portland Police Department. Now, I spent way too much time trying to figure out where the police station was before the new building mm. was built, because the new building was built in 1973. I looked that up. And I'm assuming it was right around the same place, because it's right next to the courthouse. So I'm not sure where it used to be. Somebody can tell me. But in any case, that's where he went. Roy approached the desk sergeant on duty and said he wanted to file a missing persons report. The desk sergeant told Roy he wasn't going to waste time filling a missing person report on a teenager who would probably show up in a few days. Mm. And it was the late 60s, early 70s. Teens and young people were taking off all the time. There were about 200 reports a year in Portland alone around that time. Some reports uh, I read said that the desk sergeant told Roy he had to wait 48 hours and some said 72. But whatever it was, Roy wasn't happy with this suggestion. Roy and Claire spent that night tossing and turning and worrying. At 8 a.m., Roy returned to the police station. While the desk sergeant was a different person, his attitude and unwillingness to help was the same. Roy started yelling at the police sergeant, saying he was going to report them to the Maine State Police and the governor's office. Hmm. Roy's diatribe caught the attention of police chief Douglas Steele, was in an office behind the desk. Chief Steele invited Roy into his office to talk about the issue. Roy explained how even though Kathy had been missing less than 24 hours, it was unlike her not to call or show up for plans she'd made with a friend. It wasn't like her to run away. She just wasn't that kind of a teenager. And they always called when they were going to be late. Kathy always did, and that was the rule in their family. And she was a good girl and she wouldn't have not called. The chief agreed to help Roy and called the head of the Maine State Police. Chief Steele assured Roy that Kathy's photo and information would be shared across the state. However, what Chief Steele meant by that was that Kathy's photograph would be given to state troopers across Maine, not to each law enforcement entity, mm. such as town and city police departments and county sheriff's agencies. Roy didn't realize that's what he meant. Kathy's description and statistics were also teletyped to the FBI so her case could be entered into their nationwide database. In November 1971, Kathy's locker at Deering High School was being cleaned out when a scrap of paper with a phone number written on it turned up. Police were excited. This could be a lead. Mm. But it turned out that the phone number was just the number of a phone that was at Roy's car lot. And I don't know why Roy didn't know that, but maybe the police didn't ask him and they just called it and they found out. There were supposed sightings all over the state. Mr. Pinkham in Brunswick gave a young couple a ride from the giant store in Brunswick, which was out near Cook's Corner, into downtown Brunswick. The girl's handbag was unusual and Kathy's handbag was part of the description that was given out. And her handbag has never been recovered. Spoiler alert. Someone else saw a girl of Kathy's description hitchhiking on Route 88 in Falmouth. The mother of one of Kathy's schoolmates, Alvin Drake, told police that she heard Kathy was going to Boston. Alvin, who was described as often a partner at dances with (laughs) Kathy, told his mom that was the gossip around school. Kathy's best friend, Nancy Barlow, told police that Kathy was quite interested in a classmate's account of her own trip to Boston, so maybe she decided to go there. A psychic named Alex Tannis approached the Moultons and offered himself free of charge. Hmm. Roy was quoted in Portland Magazine, I'm not saying I do or don't believe, but you've got to try these things. The two men drove around town, and according to Roy, Alex, quote, felt vibrations or whatever you want to call them in the Munjoy area. 
We came down Congress to Forest, the way we figured Kathy would have walked home, to the corner of Forest and Park Street, across from the post office, where he, meaning Alex, received a sense that Kathy got into a car and drove straight out Forest. When the car got to either Coyle or Lincoln Street, he wasn't sure which, the car turned left on one of those two streets and headed south towards Boston. Then he, meaning Alex, lost the vibrations, mm. end quote. At the end of October 1971, Roy's neighbor Cliff Pike told Roy that a former neighbor, Sarah Anderson, had seen Kathy at the Bangor Mall on Saturday, September 25th, the day after Kathy disappeared. Sarah Anderson had lived on Florence Street, and her house was right around the corner from the Moultons. Kathy used to clean Sarah's house before Sarah moved to Bangor. Sarah didn't talk to Kathy or even approach her, but she was 100% sure it was Kathy, and she was with two men who looked, to Sarah's eyes, sketchy. Roy closed the shop, and he and Claire drove to Bangor looking for Kathy but they had no luck. They continued on to Presque Isle, which is about 275 miles northeast of Portland, and Bangor's about 120 miles, so they went an extra 150-something miles. I found conflicting information about why they drove up to Presque Isle. The Portland Monthly article, which did have several factual errors in it, mm. said they had a report from the Maine State Police that a girl Kathy's description had been seen in Presque Isle. The book, Kathy Moulton, Missing Endangered, doesn't give a reason, but there must have been some reason for Claire and Rory to drive to Presque Isle. In any case, when the Moultons arrived, they went to the Presque Isle Police Department. Rory and Claire were not happy to learn that not only were the police not looking for Kathy, but they were completely unaware of who she was. Roy asked to speak to the chief of police, who told him that the main state police, sheriff's departments, and local police departments don't really talk to each other. Something we've seen in a lot of cases. Yes. But it goes against logic, so of course Roy didn't realize this unfortunate fact, because it doesn't make any sense. Roy was pretty pissed off. He said he wanted a meeting with representatives from each agency, the Prescott Police, the Arusta County Sheriff's Department, and the Maine State Police. The police chief said he would try to make arrangements, but he wasn't optimistic that the other guys would participate. Roy wasn't about to wait for someone else to take action. He had a friend, Robert Hunter, who worked at E.C. Jordan Engineering in Presque Isle. Roy called his friend and asked him to loan him a conference room for a meeting, and Robert said, sure, anything he needed. Roy and Claire got a room at the Northernmost Motel for the night. Mm. I just like the name, the Northernmost Motel. I know. The next morning at 10, all three agencies had representatives at Roy's meeting. The Maine State Police Commander of Troop F, <laughs> F Troop, <laughs> I know, who isn't named, there was no name for him in the book or anywhere, mm. from Holton was there. The State Police Lieutenant had Kathy's photo, but he told Roy he hadn't shared it with the other law <sighs> enforcement agencies. The police chief is also not named, but I assumed he was representing his agency at this meeting. Detective Edward Green was there on behalf of the Aroostook County Sheriff's Department. Even though there was no proof Kathy was in Northern Maine, the police at the meeting told Roy they would put out feelers and share Kathy's information with their counterparts and make finding her a priority. Roy and Claire were in Prescott for two weeks looking for their daughter with the help of Detective Green. Kathy's photo was identified as a young woman who was trying to buy beer. Kathy, you know, quotation marks, told the store owner she was from Connecticut. The store owner told police that she was with, quote, an Indian boy, but nothing came of it. Not much happened for years. When Kathy disappeared, she'd left both copies of her social security cards at home. The Moultons wrote to Senator Margaret Chase Smith's office asking for help in tracing Kathy's number in case she got a job or something. The Moultons were told they could write a letter, which I'm assuming 
the letter will go to the Social Security office. Yeah, I've heard of this before. Yeah. The article I got wasn't clear. Explaining the situation. The letter would be forwarded to any employer who hired someone using that Social Security number. Then the employer could give the letter to the person using that number. Of course, it wouldn't do any good if someone else was using Kathy's information or Kathy was using a fake ID or she was working under the table. But in any case, nothing came of that either. Kathy's case was never closed, but no one did much about it for years. And also their social security number was never used again. Mm. From, they kept checking it. In January 1988, so years later, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in Surrey, British Columbia, found the skeletal remains of a woman. Because of the information in the FBI's national database that was entered when Kathy disappeared, police in Maine were contacted. Detective William Deetjen, I'm assuming that his name is D-E-E-T- J-E-N, so I'm going to call him Deetjen, of the Portland Police was assigned to the revived case. He said later, we were hopeful the lead from Canada might pan out because otherwise we had nothing. So, so that across, was all the way across yes, the country. Yes, it was. A few weeks later, Detective Deetjen visited the Moulton home on Clinton Street. After he introduced himself, the detective apologized to Claire and Roy for the lackluster effort put forth by the Portland police 17 years earlier. He told the Moultons about the discovery in Canada and asked Roy and Claire for permission to get Kathy's dental records. It turned out that when Kathy had braces put on her teeth, the orthodontist had removed her canine teeth, so her dental records were easy to identify. It took a few weeks, but based on the dental records, Kathy was ruled out. Her missing eye teeth ended up ruling her out of hundreds of remains that turned up in Canada and the United Mm. States over the years. Pretty sad that there are hundreds of remains. Yes. That year, 1988, Portland Monthly ran an article about Kathy's case. According to that article, Detective Deetchen just happened to take the folder out of his drawer on January 1st after a colleague mentioned the case to him. But I think it's more likely that other information I got that Canada contacted the Portland Hmm. police. He apparently, when he went over to the Moulton's house to ask about the dental records, he also went through all of Kathy's personal stuff to see if he could find anything. She was, you know, she liked to write poetry and stuff like that like that. Mm. Claire and Roy had kept it all for 17 years waiting for Kathy to return even though she would have been 33 by then. Detective Deachin said maybe she's living happily ever after in Canada. That's where everyone was going in the early 70s or maybe she's buried somewhere in Maine or Massachusetts or a skeleton in a morgue. That's the sad thing. We just don't know. You know who was going to Canada in the early 70s? Fucking draft dodgers. Not Kathy Moulton. Unless someone thought well maybe she had a boyfriend who was you know. So he said that to the parents? No it was a quote that was in the Portland Monthly. Okay. For their part, Claire and Roy were just happy someone was paying attention. Roy said, you don't know how important it is to have anyone try to do something after all these years. It's more than we ever hoped would happen. The older you get, the faster time goes. Claire said, we love Kathy, and if she's alive, we'd like to have the family reunited. If not, well, we'd like to know that too. The hardest part is not knowing. After that short burst of energy, the Kathy Moulton case languished once again. In November of 1995, the Kathy Moulton missing persons case was opened up again. Detective Kevin Cady was a member of the Tactical Enforcement Unit, or TEU. They helped the Detective Bureau with extra cases, as well as performing sting operations and undercover work. It sounded like they just did like all the extra things. Right. You know, like Detective Sergeant Thomas Joyce Jr., wanted to work on some of the cold murder cases, major crimes, and missing persons cases, and gave Kathy Moulton's file to Kevin, 
to see if he could work on it and hopefully find a new lead. Kevin looked through the thin folder in disbelief at its few pages. All he found was the original one-page missing person report and the investigative supplement by Detective William Deachin. But he got to work hoping he'd find something to go with. Kevin did find something, the name of Kathy's best friend, Nancy Barlow. He found out she was living in North Carolina. When Kevin called Kathy, she told him he was the first investigator to contact her about her friendship with Kathy. Wow. I mean, you'd think if a 16-year-old girl disappears, the first people I would be talking to would be her friends. Right, but you're female. I know. Back in 1971, there was a coffee house at 654 Congress Street near Longfellow Square called The Gate. A lot of young people hung out there. One of Kathy's English teachers, John Glenn, gave readings there. Kathy, who wrote poetry herself, would go there some afternoons to watch him and others recite their work. Nancy told Kevin that Kathy was seeing an older guy named Lester Everett, who she met around town. She also met photographer Chris Church at the coffee house. One day in April or May of 1971, Nancy and Kathy met Chris, and he wanted to take some photographs of Kathy. He had a studio in Monument Square. Kathy told her friend Nancy later that she had taken Chris up on his offer, and he had photographed her. Nancy told Kevin that Kathy's parents were strict and didn't realize that Kathy was smoking, but they did because they talked about it, or that she was sexually active with her secret boyfriend, Lester, who was 22. Chris Church was still around Portland 25 years after Kathy was gone. Kevin did a background check on him and didn't find anything untoward. Mm. He decided he needed to talk to Chris and see if he knew anything. Chris came into the police station for questioning on November 25th, 1995. From the book by Kevin, and Katie. It seems like Detective Sergeant Tom Joyce was trying the read method on Chris Church, <laughs> telling Chris he was lying and that it was time to tell the truth, telling him the police knew about the photography session, telling Chris that Nancy had told them all about it. The ex-cop, Kevin Katie, in the book, he's like bragging about it, and I'm like, oh, yep. oh. As they do. I know. Chris said that, yes, he had photographed Kathy in the spring of 1971, but the photos were innocent, and she had her clothes on. He did try to kiss her that day, but nothing happened between them. Chris would have been about 20 or 21 at the time, just to give you some perspective. So he probably was a little too old, but... And a little too forward... 1971, things are, you know... Well, Detective Joyce continued to badger... That's Katie's word, and he was using it as a compliment, Chris, to see if he had anything to do with Kathy's disappearance. Chris stuck to his story that he knew nothing about it. He did admit to being interested in the story and reading and following the news about Kathy's disappearance, as you would if you knew somebody. He told police he would look for the negatives, and if he had them, he would bring photos to them, which he did a week later. A lot of these are photos you might see if you Google Kathy. One was used as the cover of Kevin Katie's book. They're black and white photos. They're very nice portraits. She's very cute. Yeah, they're beautiful portraits. And the police ended up giving copies to Claire and Roy, who were very happy to have them. Oh, that's nice. Kevin also researched Lester Everett, the older boyfriend Kathy was seeing at the time of her disappearance. He found out that Lester had an outstanding failure to appear in court warrant from 1971 for a misdemeanor theft charge. Arrest warrants never expire even for misdemeanors. So Kevin meant to use it if he found Lester as a means to get him into custody and question him. Kevin also found Lester's brother Mark in the records from the late 1970s. Mark was in a bar in Woodford's Corner in Portland when he walked outside and shot himself in the head and died. Unfortunately, Lester was also dead. 
He had died of cancer in the mid-1980s. One of his most recent addresses was in Fernandina Beach, Florida. But Kevin found out something interesting in Lester's criminal past. He was the suspect in a car theft in Falmouth, Maine, September 1971. And Falmouth is a town just east of Portland. In September 1971, Mrs. Davis, the owner of the Davis Hotel on Route 1 in Falmouth, reported her 1963 blue Cadillac sedan stolen to the Falmouth police. She had loaned it to her employee, Lester Everett, and he and the car both disappeared. And mm. I never found out Mrs. Davis's first name. Yeah. In late October 1971, according to the police report, Mrs. Davis got her credit card bill and saw a transaction for four tires and gas at Dorsey's Garage in Fort Fairfield, Maine. Fort Fairfield is in northern Maine on the eastern border of New Brunswick, Canada. It's almost kind of a tie to that Presque Isle stuff because it's up, yes. up in You'll it's see. near Presque Isle in Aristocana. You will see. Oh, Mrs. Davis used to leave her credit card in the Cadillac. Apparently, Lester used it. When the case was reopened in 1995, Detective Joyce spoke with Roy Moulton, and Roy told police that he had found a letter from Detective Green of the Aroostook County Sheriff's Office that had been written in February 1972. Detective Green told Roy that he had located the Indian boy, that's in quotes, and the girl who had tried to buy beer was not Kathy. The letter was added as evidence to Kathy's file. And what I'm- do you mean he had found a letter? Roy found a letter that had he forgot he had this letter. Okay, so he got it in the mail in 1972. He got it in the mail in 1972, okay. and he found it in his stuff, and he wanted to give it to the okay. cop. The story in the Portland Monthly said, oh, that girl turned out to be a girl from Connecticut who has returned home, and that is not true. The sheriff, the Indian boy, as he called him, said that the girl wasn't Kathy, and he believed him. Detective Green was retired in 1995 and living in Ohio. When police called him, he remembered the case well and said that he now believed the Indian boy had lied and the girl with him probably was Kathy Moulton. Mm. Detective Green also didn't remember the name of this Indian boy. The name was not in the letter he wrote to Roy Moulton. Detective Green had met the young man, and I'm not going to call him the Indian boy anymore because I can't deal with yeah. it. Anyway, he met the young man at Tobique Point, Maliseet First Nation, New Brunswick, in 1971. But Detective Green never spoke with the girl and accepted what the young man told him as the truth. But later he started to suspect it was a lie. There was no explanation as to why Detective Green had decided the boy was lying, but you'll see later that he probably was lying. When he was asked who else police should talk to for follow-up, Detective Green told Portland police that Don Logan in Fort Fairfield had worked at Dorsey's Garage, where the tires and gas were bought with a stolen credit card, and they should definitely speak to him. Kevin... And when I say Kevin, I'm talking about Detective Katie. I just, you know. And you're just like on a first name basis with him after well, reading his book. Well, it's just easier. I know, yeah. Kevin talked to Falmouth Police about the 1971 stolen car case. They didn't have the best records in that specific case. However, the Falmouth Police were well aware of the Davis Motel, and Detective David Cloth of the Falmouth Police told Kevin it was a sketchy place with a lot of dirtbag characters <laughs> hanging around back in the early 1970s. And I tried to Google it. The only thing I found was like this old postcard that had a picture, and it was blurry, and I couldn't make it It must bigger. have been like on Route 1, right? It was on Route 1 in Falmouth. Detective Joy 
always discuss the case with a former Portland cop, David Drake, who now worked for the U.S. Marshals. His partner, Mike Rand, actually knew the Moulton family, David Drake's partner, who was also a marshal, um, since he lived above them in an apartment on Monjoy Hill years before. The federal marshals agreed to help with the investigation, and with their assistance coordinating with the State Department and the Canadian government, the Portland detectives were able to ask the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP, mm. for help. As the story unfolds, you'll see how the assistance of Canadian law enforcement was necessary. Detective Joyce spoke with Don Logan, the guy who worked at Dorsey's Garage in Fort Fairfield. Don Logan remembered the event, maybe because he'd been questioned about it. The story is kind of jumbled as to why he would remember this. I mean, it was 25 years before. I'm assuming the Falmouth police called them about the stolen credit card because of the car being stolen and they were trying to track it down. In any case, this is the story Don Logan told. The blue Cadillac had a Caucasian guy driving it, and he was with a girl who matched Kathy's description and a Native American young man who escorted her to the restroom. When the two were walking, the Native American man walked very close to the girl and kept his hand on the back of her neck while they walked. Over 20 years later, when he was interviewed, Don Logan still remembered it because it was creepy, and he wondered if she had been abducted since they were so close to the border. And yet... This is one of first of many, I'm going to say, he didn't really express the concern to police or anything. Not to defend him, but I think a lot of people's reaction is, yeah, but if I call police, they're just going to laugh at me. I'm I'm sure it's nothing. How likely is it that that would be an abducted girl? Blah, blah, blah. When shown photos of both Kathy Moulton and Lester Everett, Don Logan positively identified both of them as two of the people he saw that day. When Kevin Cady and Tom Joyce, along with U.S. Marshals David Drake and Mike Rand, drove up north in January of 1996, they found that the state police troop F. and Holton had no records left on Kathy Moulton's case. The Fort Fairfield Police Department had been a victim of the St. John River flooding in 1973, and all their records were lost. Mm. Next, the four police went to Canada, to Perth Andover, where Tobique Point was. The Tobique Band of Maliseets had their own police force, and the RCMP would be helping the Americans working with the First Nation police. When photos of Lester and Kathy were shown to Ted Bear, the Tobique police chief during the time Kathy was missing, he was police chief 1970-71, he barely glanced at them and said he didn't know who they were. But later, when brought into the RCMP office by a Tobique constable and interviewed by Tom Joyce and Sergeant Mazarole of the RCMP, Ted Bear admitted he knew Lester from the 1970s. When shown a photo of Kathy, he said it looked like Reed Pearlie's girlfriend, Candy. He said she came from Maine with Lester and Reed. He said she stayed with Reed and Maurice Pearlie for a while, and then something bad happened to her back then. But he clammed up and wouldn't tell police anymore, so they ended the interview. After he left, Sergeant Mazerole told the other police that Ronald Reed Pearlie was currently awaiting trial on the reservation for a home invasion and rape. He was currently out on bond, but had to check into the RCMP daily as part of his bail conditions. Mazerole said when Reed came in the next day, he'd show him the pictures and see what he said. Sergeant Mazerole said that Reed was not a good guy and neither was his family. The RCMP had a shootout with the Pearlie boys a few months before. The next day, Sergeant Mazerole called the American police and told them when he showed Reed Pearlie the photos, Reed identified Lester and said he'd met him in Portland in the early 70s. He also said Lester had been up to Canada and Sergeant Mazerole told Reed that Lester was dead. But when Sergeant Mazerole showed Reed Kathy's photo, Reed said he'd never seen her before, 
didn't know her. But then he said in a, quote, mocking tone, according to Sergeant Maserol, you mean she never made it home? Her parents haven't seen her since then? When Kevin told Tom Joyce about the conversation, Tom got annoyed that Maserol had told Reed that Lester was dead. Tom wanted to use the Reed method on Reed (laughs) (laughs) and say Lester ratted him out to get Reed Perlman to admit to something. Oh, well. Too now he'll just have to use actual I know, interrogation I said, techniques. I know. Sergeant Maserol kept asking around. Most of the people on the reservation wouldn't talk on the record, but one of the anonymous sources told him he should talk to Millie Augustine of Big Cove, New Brunswick, which is the Elsapogtog First Nation, a mm. Micmac reservation. I looked up Elsa Pogtog to see the best way to pronounce it. They had like one of those phonetic things. The four American police, you know, these guys, they went on lots of trips to Canada. The four of them, Tom and Kevin, the two Portland detectives, and Dave and Mike, the two U.S. Marshals, went back up to Canada to interview some more people. One person they interviewed was Reed Purley. When he showed up for his check-in, Mike and Dave interviewed him. Reed refused to respond to their questions. Later, Dave Drake said, When we interviewed Pearlie and he refused to cooperate, I sat across the table from him and asked him straight out, Did you kill Kathy Moulton? He didn't respond verbally, but his ice-cold, very dark eyes, magnified by thick glasses, told me something different. <laughs> I've, interviewed, I've interviewed hundreds of violent felons in my 36-year career, and Pearlie stands out as the coldest of them all. That day, he went from pretty boy Indian to stone-cold felon. We were absolutely convinced after that encounter with him that he had participated in, or at least had direct knowledge of Kathy's demise, end quote. I have to say, I've talked to not hundreds, but dozens of cops in my life, and I've never heard one use the phrase, his ice cold, dark (laughs) eyes magnified by his thick glasses. (laughs) Blah, blah, blah. Oh, I'm sorry, I wasn't done with the quote. (laughs) He had another paragraph. That interview really convinced me. His body language was intense, and his eyes told me he knew what happened. He may not have killed her, but he did participate or felt responsible somehow. I've gotten pretty good at reading people, especially what they're not saying. When Tom Choice spoke with Millie Augustine by phone and faxed copies of photos of Lester and Kathy to her, Millie said she knew Lester well and remembered Kathy. She sent photos back to Tom of her, her sister Donna Augustine, Emmett Peters, and Lester, or David, as he preferred to be called. These photos were taken in Fernandia Beach, Florida, where the four had lived for a time. Millie was now a lawyer at Big Cove. She told Tom Joyce she had spent a few days with Kathy and weeks with Lester in Mars Hill, Maine, on October 1971. She knew Reed Pearlie and said he was not in Mars Hill at that same time. And Mars Hill is right up near where all those other places are. Right. It's, it's on Route 1 north of Holton yeah, in Aroostook County. It's, yeah, it's like south of... Right. If you're southeast. driving from Holton in southern Aroostook County to Presque Isle in northern Aroostook County, you go through Mars Hill at some point. It's like two blocks of little buildings. Yes. Millie had always assumed Kathy had gone back home to Portland and was living a normal life. She never knew Kathy had been missing for almost 25 years. Life before the internet was much different. 
Mm. Kevin tracked down Emmett Peters with the help of the RCMP. Emmett was living on a reservation in Nova Scotia. I think he's Micmac. Through the RCMP interview, Kevin learned that Emmett had been working the potato harvest at McBride's farm on Mars Hill. Emmett worked with Lester, a.k.a. David, and he remembered that David had a girl with him named Kathy. And one night, David and Kathy left, and the next day, David was there without her. Emma told police that no one really asked where Kathy was and no one really talked about her after she was gone. In November of 1971, Emmett went with David, Millie, and Donna Augustine to Florida in the Blue Cadillac. Emmett also knew Reed Pearlie and said he was not at the McBride farm in Mars Hill in October of 1971. Kevin had requested files for all unidentified female bodies from 1971 through 1996, both from the FBI and the Canadian Police Information Center. He got over 200 records back Mm. and started going through them in June of 1996. Portland Police Deputy Chief Mark Dion translated the French ones from Quebec. Mark Dion, who's now a city councilor. And I believe he was in some of our... He was in your Don Layton episode. Oh, yes, he was. Because of Kathy's unusual dental work, all the remains reported could be eliminated as being her. Clara Moulton's DNA was taken and logged as evidence also, encoded at the state police lab and added to the original missing person entry. The DNA was also entered into CODIS, which I forget. True crime people know what CODIS is. Uh, No matches ever came up for that. Reed Pearlie was married to a woman from Bangor named Ann Beaver. Reed's father was Maurice, and his mother was Rita, and Reed had seven brothers and seven sisters oh. to which i say Ugh. Yeah. kevin called reed's sister jacqueline to ask her if she remembered kathy jacqueline said that she remembered a girl named candy staying with her family in 1971 candy told her told jacqueline that she was from portland and stayed for about a month Jacqueline remembered the visit was between Halloween and Thanksgiving. Unfortunately, Kevin doesn't give any idea how old Jacqueline was at the time of Kathy Candy's stay, so there's no way of knowing how reliable. I have a feeling she was fairly young, maybe, you know, under 10. Right. Um, I don't think she was old. Anyway, Jacqueline also told Kevin that Candy had been at Ivan Pearlie's home, who Kevin called a neighbor, but I think he's also described as an uncle. But Pearlie is a very common surname in the Maliseet Nation. He lived next door. Ivan was known around the reservation as Ivan the Rapist. Not a good sign. Candy had been seen running naked from Ivan's home during a blizzard on Thanksgiving in 1971. Jacqueline told Kevin she hadn't seen Candy after Thanksgiving. Ivan Pearlie died in the late 19th. 19- was that American Thanksgiving or yes, Canadian American, it Thanksgiving? Was American, it was American Thanksgiving. And there was a huge blizzard that day in 1971. And um, for our international listeners, Thanksgiving is the um, fourth the thir- Thursday the, of November. It's the third Thursday. Oh, yeah, duh. Yes. And Canada's is sometime in October. In October, exactly. Mm-hmm. Ivan Pearlie died in the late 1980s, and Reed's sister, Leisha, moved into his house. Kevin called Reed's mother-in-law in Bangor, who told him that she didn't really like her son-in-law. Her daughter, Anne, had seen a photo of Reed and was smitten. When Anne and Reed met, they had a whirlwind romance and married quickly. Anne moved to the Maliseet First Nation Reservation and started a family. In doing background check on Reed Pearlie, Portland police found that he had an outstanding warrant for failure to appear in Bangor District Court on a criminal trespassing charge. Unfortunately, it was too minor for them to be able to extradite Reed from Canada. Reed's criminal background was quite far-reaching, though, starting in the 1970s and ranging from Berkeley, California, to Bangor, Maine. In 1978, Reed was held for questioning for a murder in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
1996, Kevin found out the murder of Julie Campbell was still an open and unsolved case. Although in his book, he keeps calling her Judy, which is totally wrong. Portland detectives went to Cambridge to find out more. If Reed had a murder warrant issued in the U.S., maybe they could extradite him from Canada. Spoiler, Julie's case is still open. You can look it up. Much is made in Kevin's book about how the two girls, Julie and Kathy, looked alike, but they really didn't. Julie is described as a striking blonde and was 23, while Kathy was a young girl with brown hair. Julie does have brown hair in some photos, but the only thing the two have in common is they both have long hair parted in the middle. In any case, Julie was stabbed to death in the early morning hours of February 27th, 1978, when she left the Plow and Stars bar. Oh, I've been there. Ooh. Earlier witnesses identified Ronald Reed Purley as a guy who was trying to buy Julie drinks earlier in the evening. Julie wasn't interested. When police went to question Reed a few days after Julie's death, he wasn't home at his rooming house. They knocked on a neighbor's door across the hall and a young woman answered who appeared shocked to see police at her door. Lieutenant Thomas Spartacino told the Boston Herald, We questioned her because obviously something was wrong. She blurted out that she had just been raped and she identified the man as Pearl. We took her to the Cambridge Hospital where she was treated and released. When the cops finally caught up with Reed, not only was he charged with the rape of his neighbor, he was also arraigned on a 1972 charge of assault with intent to rape and possession of marijuana. He was held for questioning on Julie's murder, but there simply wasn't enough evidence and Reed refused to say anything to police, so they had to let him go. I couldn't find out how much time he served for the current rape and old charges of the attempted rape, but obviously it was not enough time. Mm. Police told the Boston Herald that Reed was wanted in Toronto, Winnipeg, another city in New Brunswick that they didn't say the name of the city, for various crimes. He was wanted in Berkeley, California, on the charge of intent to rape. In 1996, Portland police questioned two friends of Lester Everett from back in the 1970s, John Wayne Aceto and Tony Taroni. The three were friends from the late 1960s through the 70s. Wayne told police that he knew Kathy and suspected she was pregnant when she disappeared, which I doubt. I don't think she was pregnant. No. Wayne told police that Lester came back to Maine in 1973 and asked Wayne to go with him up north and to New Brunswick to see if he could find out what happened to Kathy. Lester told Wayne he left Kathy with a friend in October 1971, and as they both knew, she never came back. I think Lester didn't realize for a while that Kathy was missing because he went to Florida. I don't yeah, these guys are going all over the place. Yeah, I know. Lester and Wayne drove to Canada to Tobique Point. When Lester and Wayne approached the Pearlie family home, Ivan and some of Reed's brothers attacked them and told them to get lost. Wayne told police that Lester was pinned to the ground and someone pulled off his cowboy boots and stole his leather jacket. Wayne told the cops, as we pulled away, one of those fucking Indians screamed at us, if you ever come back, we'll kill you. Lester was confused about the hostile treatment since the last time he was there, two years before, he was a guest in the home. He wondered what made him suddenly so unwelcome. He also apparently felt bad about leaving Kathy behind and going to Florida, though it doesn't seem like he did anything about it. He went back to Florida, got married to a woman named Darlene Dixon, and started a family. He had a son named David, who would later end up in jail on murder conviction. 
years later. In 1996, Tony Taroni was in jail on drug charges and agreed to be interviewed, hoping his cooperation would help his case. Tony knew Kathy Moulton well, since she was his next-door neighbor on Clinton Street. Tony told police that in 1975, he and Lester drove to Las Vegas. They funded the trip by picking up hitchhikers, robbing them at gunpoint, and then dropping them back off on the road. Oh, that's a good plan. I know. I know. You were wondering how to how to fund your trip to see Liz. You could have thought about Yes, that. why didn't I think of that? <laughs> he said they robbed at least three people. Tony and Lester were never arrested for their crimes. Tony told police that while on their road trip, he asked Lester twice about Kathy, and Lester refused to talk about her. It was not in Lester's character to be so reticent. In October 1996, a grand jury was convened in Cumberland County Superior Court by Maine Assistant Attorney General William Schneider. Testifying were John Wayne Aceto, Larry Lair, Lester's stepbrother, Dorothy Everett, Lester's mother. Nothing new was learned from their testimony, but a few days after the grand jury, Larry Lair called and yelled at Detective Tom Joyce and said police had caused his mother, Dorothy Everett, to have a stroke, which she had shortly after her testimony. On March 1997, Maine investigators visited Tobique Point again. They were convinced that Kathy probably died there. Roy and Clarissa had set up a $5,000 reward to anyone with information about what happened to Kathy or resulted in finding her remains. Kevin spoke with Jacqueline, Reed's sister, in person, and she repeated that she was sure Kathy, or Candy as she was known, had stayed at her home during October and November of 1971. She identified the photos of Lester and Kathy and said there were a lot of people who passed through their home while she was growing up. Jacqueline told Kevin that I Ivan Pearlie's home was next door to her childhood home, and it was, quote, a dark family secret that Kathy had run out of Ivan's house in the middle of the blizzard. Jacqueline was certain something horrible had happened to Candy. According to Detective Kevin Cady's book, during this interview, Leisha Pearlie, Jacqueline's sister, burst in and screamed, Stop talking to the fucking cops! After that, Jacqueline stopped offering any information. <laughs> the main cop spoke with Ted Berrigan, who claimed he didn't know Kathy or Lester, which is weird because a year before he admitted to knowing the two, but Kevin doesn't address this in his book, so who knows? I don't. Mm. Not to be too picky, because his book has a lot of good information, but there are a lot of factual errors I caught by doing research elsewhere. But his recollections of interviews was really helpful, so I, you know... It's a double-edged sword. In 1997, Reed was in prison for rape of his neighbor on the reservation. He had received an 8- to 10-year sentence at Spring Hill Prison in Nova Scotia. Kevin and Tom Joyce visited Anne, Reed's wife, at her house on the reservation. She told the two cops that after they visited last time, her husband told her that he had been accused of killing a girl, but he didn't tell her anything else, and they never spoke of the subject again. He had been accused of killing a girl in Massachusetts, so was he talking about that, or was he talking about... Kathy, I don't know. Kevin and Tom put up flyers about the $5,000 reward all over the reservation, but found out later that Leisha Pearlie had taken them down and destroyed them. In June 1997, Kevin got a phone call from Police Chief Riel Boulay in Grand Falls, New Brunswick. He told Kevin there was a rumor that one of the Pearlie sisters had been murdered and was buried under Ivan Pearlie's house on Tabique Point, but none of the Pearlie sisters had died or were missing. Kevin found out that Ivan's house had burned down in the 1970s and had been rebuilt. And as I said before, Leisha Pearlie lived there. There was really no way to search for anything without a warrant or permission, intriguing as the rumor was. And you can't get a warrant on a rumor 
and Leisha clearly didn't like the cops, so they weren't going to be able to look for Kathy's body under the house. Kevin and Tom really wanted to interview Reed Pearlie in prison. They jumped through a lot of hoops because of the two different countries. They finally got permission to interview him and offer him limited immunity if he gave them helpful information. Reed's response was, quote, I told them I wasn't going to talk about her again, and I won't, ever. So, that was a dead end. In spring of 1998, remains were found in Fredericton, New Brunswick. But dental records proved it wasn't Kathy, just one of the hundreds of unfortunate young women who are killed and dumped every year. Mm -hmm. Kevin decided to consult a psychic from Massachusetts who had been recommended by a contact at the (laughs) Massachusetts State Police. Jesus Christ. While Tom Joyce thought this was a stupid idea, Kevin thought it was worth a shot. The psychic, Gladys Rogers, and Gladys is a name that no one, no one names their kids anymore. No, even less than Maureen. I know. Told Kevin that Kathy was dead and was buried in a sand pit with scrub near the intersection of Forest Avenue and Riverside Street in Portland. There was such a place, and Kevin asked her to come to Maine and see if she could learn more. Maybe being in the place would spark her, her juices and (laughs) in july 1997 gladys kevin tom and dave drake drove around the city of portland they drove down clinton street which gladys didn't know was kathy's street and when they passed 102 gladys pointed to the house and said that's her house Mm. tom joyce was impressed then it went downhill gladys said oh my god she was killed there by her father (laughs) then the four drove to the lot where gladys said kathy was buried they didn't have permission to be there. It was owned by J.B. Brown Company then or something. Yeah. So they couldn't dig or anything. And now there's a Hannaford. It's where that Hannaford is on Riverside Street. In 1999, Kevin was promoted and transferred to another job. He and Tom Joyce met with the Moltons to fill them in on what they had found out. They didn't tell them all the details, just quoting Tom Joyce. This is Tom Joyce, not me. Kathy met, met a very bad Indian. That's what he told her mm-hmm. parents. They told her they believed Kathy was dead and buried somewhere in New Brunswick. And you know, I just want to say, she also met a very bad Lester Everett. I know, exactly. Because so, there's no way, I've just been feeling all along, there's no way she's going to voluntarily get in a car with that guy yes, and go up to Aroostook County. The Moltons, according to Kevin, took the information calmly and thanked the two police. In 1998... Deputy U.S. Marshal David Drake went to Georgia to speak with Lester Everett's widow, Darlene. She said the blue Cadillac had been on blocks in their backyard in Florida for years and finally sold for scrap, but Lester had never mentioned Kathy Moulton's name. In 2002, retired police chief Douglas Steele told Tom Joyce that his gut feeling had always been that Kathy's father, Roy, had something to do with her disappearance. Ooh, so the psychic was right. However, as Kevin pointed out in his book, Kathy Moulton missing endangered... There was absolutely no evidence to support that gut feeling. The father's insistence from the beginning when she I know was... he and he was at home with his, the rest of his family too. Right. It's not like like he took her for a drive and then right. she disappeared. And her friend saw her and all that stuff. I know it was stupid. In two thousand and three, when Tom Joyce retired, there wasn't anyone left in the Portland Police Department to continue the cold case investigation. It just stopped again. In 2004, the case was briefly in the news again. What the impetus was, I don't know, because it isn't explained in the newspaper articles or in Kevin Cady's book, but this is what happened. In 1983, a hunter from New Jersey came out of the woods in Smyrna, Maine, which is not far from the Canadian border, Mars Hill, Presque Isle, 
all those other places we've talked about. The hunter reported to police he'd seen skeletal remains and woman's clothing lying around. So this was in 1983. So this was 12 years after her her disappearance. He wasn't able to retrace his steps, so apparently the search was called off. 21 years later, for some reason not explained, Kevin Cady and Tom Joyce contacted the Maine Warden Service to see if they could find the site where the remains lay. I wondered if it had to do with the Warden Service finding Amy. I wonder if it had something right. to do with that. They were like, oh, they found her, maybe. I like, mean, oh, but they don't explain why suddenly right. they're like, oh, let's go. So they contacted the Maine Warden Service to see if they could find the site where those remains lay. The hunter had also reported that at the scene was a stack of six maple syrup barrels in a triangle formation and an old stove. Kevin and Game Warden Kevin Adam interviewed the hunter who lived in Smyrna or was staying there. It wasn't clear because they kept saying he was from New Jersey, but then Kevin said he lived in a fly-infested trailer. In Maybe Smyrna. he had a, it was his hunting was summer. camp. That's what I was thinking. The hunter was in poor health and couldn't go and show them where he saw the skeleton. Remember, this was 21 years after he had first reported it. He said that he thought it was a woman because he saw a bra. He also said the skeleton had no head. The game warden told him that black bears often take the skulls to gnaw on them mm. to get to the brain. Mm. It's like, that's something I really didn't need to yeah. know. So- I just heard on another podcast that the head is frequently one of the first parts that gets separated, but it's more just because of the construction of the oh, skeleton. Yeah, yeah, the body. That makes yeah. sense, too. The Bangor Daily News reported at the time several people told investigators they knew where the site was. On Monday, November 1st, 2004... Sergeant Patrick Doran of the Maine Warden Service told ah. the Bangor Daily News, a couple of people have come forth with information, and we think it will be key in finding where the barrels were. We are going to conduct another search on Sunday. The search party included Kevin, Tom Joyce, and Kathy's sister Kim and her husband, along with a warden plane and cadaver dogs and all sorts of people. The first day they searched for as long as they could but found nothing. Unfortunately, on the second search day, there was heavy snow and they weren't able to continue that year. Almost a year later, in October 2005, the Bangor Daily News quoted Sergeant Patrick Doran, quote, Last year we were hopeful that we could positively identify where those barrels were. We went to the site where the hunter thought he had seen them and really hit the country very hard, but we just could not locate anything. A great deal of time has passed and roads have been built through the area over the years. It makes things more difficult, end quote. Sergeant Doran said they probably weren't going to keep looking. Kevin's book comes up with a fairly plausible theory of what happened. And I'm going to give this narrative because I think, based on what the evidence is, it makes a lot of sense. Some of what he has in his story is speculative, but from what witnesses who were there that autumn of 1971 told him, it's a pretty good theory. And I'm actually not going to speculate as much as he did because I left out a lot of his guesses about what people were thinking and Mm, feeling. Yeah, I don't like that. So this is what I believe happened and what he kind of thinks happened too. After Kathy left the music store, she was walking down Forest Avenue when Lester pulled over in the borrowed 1963 Cadillac. He asked Kathy if she wanted to go for a ride with him. In the car with him was a boy of about 18 with braids who Lester introduced as Reed. Kevin theorizes that Reed was a hitchhiker, but he might have been. He might have been somebody that Lester just knew from doing drugs or who, well, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Kathy didn't realize when she got in the car that Lester had agreed to drive Reed to New Brunswick. She may have thought they were just going on a short drive, or it could be that Lester told her he was dropping his friend off and he'd bring her home. I wondered if he knew he was going to New Brunswick, why he asked her along. Maybe he wasn't going to bring her, and then Reed's like, oh yeah, bring her. 
Maybe he just thought it'd be fun to go on a road trip with her and have the company, and he didn't realize what was going to happen. Who knows? But they didn't go home. They didn't bring her home. They drove northeast and ended up in Bangor, where they spent the night. Kathy probably wanted to go home by now, but she may not have wanted to look like a baby in front of her older boyfriend. He was probably controlling, which is why he decided to date a teenager instead of a woman his own age. They stopped at the Mangum Mall to eat. That's where Sarah Anderson, the former neighbor, saw them. Now, remember, this was 1971. Kathy had just disappeared. Her story wouldn't be on TV news up there. And even if it was, it wouldn't be on yet. Even nowadays, it wouldn't. I know it sounds dumb. If you've been only around the last 20 years or so, you might be like, why didn't she Sarah report it? Whatever. At about 3 p.m. on Saturday, the trio were in Fort Fairfield, where Lester filled up the tank and bought tires with Mrs. Davis's credit card. Kathy went to the bathroom, but was accompanied by Reed, who kept close to her side with his hand on her neck. Lester drove the back roads into Canada to avoid going through the border checkpoint. This is not easy or even possible nowadays, but back then, the borders were pretty lax. And I'm sure Reed knew where to go. And it's a lot, a lot of woods and a lot of, like, old tote roads Mm -hmm. and stuff. And also, the Maliseet and all the Abnaki tribes, their tribes spread across the U.S.-Canada border. They're familiar with crossing because they recognize their nation, not the one we've imposed on them. They drove through Perth Andover, New Brunswick, over the Tabik Narrows Bridge onto the Tabik Point, home of the Tabik Maliseet. How many times can I say Tabik? A Tabik Maliseet First Nation Reservation. Lester and Kathy stayed at Reed's Folks House for a couple of nights. A lot of Native Americans from Canada would work the potato fields in late fall to make extra money. Like a lot of that kind of work, it's day-to-day work and you get paid as you work. You get paid by the basket of potato. Somebody (laughs) probably mentioned this to Lester since he would probably want to get some money to get back home. Lester and Kathy went to McBride's farm in Mars Hill because it was likely the closest and a lot of people from the reservation worked there. Most of the people working at McBride's were Native American from Maine and Canada. Lester wasn't prepared for the very hard work. He fucked around and sometimes took naps during the work day. Hmm. Um, So he couldn't have made that much money. Millie Augustine and her younger sister Donna, ages 17 and 16, worked at McBride's farm. Their dad, Joseph, also worked there. This was the third season the girls had been picking potatoes. Lester told everyone his name was David. He was worried police were looking for the stolen car and possibly worried about them looking for Kathy. He hid the car in the woods near the potato field. Millie thought Kathy was probably a runaway. Millie noticed Kathy was frightened of the other workers and she felt bad for the girl so she befriended her. Millie recalled that Kathy didn't trust Lester, and she stayed in the car almost all the time, even sleeping in it. They must have bunkhouses there for seasonal workers. They do. Kathy apparently wasn't working. Kathy stayed in the car and constantly combed her hair. Mm. Kathy told Millie that her parents must be looking for her. She's sure that's what they would do if she didn't come home. Kathy told Millie she wished she could go home or at least contact her family. Another time where I'm saying, could somebody please have stepped in and said, can I give you a ride to somewhere? Right. Can you... I think people just probably back then, especially it's none of their business. And it sounds to me like she was totally traumatized by this time. If she was yes. just sitting in that car all the time, Combing her hair. not leaving it. I was going to say for people who again, aren't familiar with Maine and stuff, and especially back then, Aroostook County is in Northern Maine. It's an area, very rural. If she 
got out of the car and tried to leave, she wasn't going to get very far. Unless someone helped her. But if she decided to go hitchhike or something, they'd just go get her. Joe, who was Millie and Donna's dad, Joe Augustine, brought Kathy's supper in the Cadillac each night. Lester was drinking all the time. He told people he was sick of Kathy nagging and bitching to go home. On September 29th, while the other workers gathered around a bonfire socializing, Lester got in the car with Kathy and said they were going for a ride. But instead of going to Portland like Kathy wanted, Lester drove toward the Canadian border on the back roads. Later that evening, Lester drove up to the home of Reed and his parents, Rita and Maurice. Lester left shortly afterward without Kathy. Somehow, he had convinced Reed or the Pearlies to allow her to stay in their home. He drove back to McBride's farm in Mars Hill, using the back roads, of course, and was there the next morning for work without Kathy. Millie asked him where Kathy was, and Lester reportedly said, I dropped her off at another camp. I'm glad to be rid of that nagging bitch. Lester stayed working at the farm until the end of potato harvest in mid-October and never talked about Kathy again. Mm. In October, Lester asked Millie, Donna, and Emmett Peters to go to Florida with him to pick oranges. He told them there were plenty of jobs to be had. The three others thought it was a great idea, so they packed up the Cadillac and drove nonstop. They reached Florida about three days later and stopped in Fernandina Beach, a bit north of Jacksonville. Lester drove the car right onto the beach and told them they'd arrive, but there were no jobs and the four young people had no place to stay. Lester's three new friends weren't too happy with him. They ended up sleeping in the car that night. Somehow they became friends with an older couple, Mr. and Mrs. Samuels. I couldn't find out first names. The Samuels offered the four a place to stay until they got on their feet. They ended up staying for a few months. In March, Millie, Donna, and Emmett took a Greyhound bus back to the Maritimes, Emmett to his home in Nova Scotia, and the girls to New Brunswick. Lester stayed behind in Florida doing odd jobs and getting paid under the table. Millie said no one ever talked about Kathy. Millie hadn't even thought about her until she got the call from Detective Tom Joyce all those years later. But though Millie hadn't thought about her, she did remember Kathy very well. According to the theory, Kathy was at the Pearly home for a couple of months, then something happened to her, someone killed her, and disposed of her body. Unless Jacqueline is not remembering correctly and Kathy didn't stay there, or Candy was another girl. If that's the case, I think Kathy was killed by Lester and left somewhere in the Aroostook County woods. Right. In 2011, Kevin Cady started a Facebook page, Kathy Moulton Missing Endangered. He said one of the first people to join was Leisha Purley, who messaged with him thinking he was a member of the Moulton family or a family friend. Leisha told Kevin she didn't know much about Kathy, but that Kathy had stayed at her home back in 1971. She said she was terrified of Ivan and didn't want to go near his house as a child. She'd heard rumors when she was young about something happening to Kathy, but she was too young to really remember. Leisha also offered to talk to Reed and see what he said about Kathy, telling Kevin Katie that she could tell when her brother was lying. Unfortunately, once she figured out who Kevin was, she <laughs> stopped talking to him and blocked mm. him. In 2004, 14, Roy Moulton told WGME Channel 13, I don't think one day, in fact, I'm going to say, I don't think one day has gone by that I haven't said a prayer for that girl. One of my greatest fears of disappointment in my life, and this has been true for many years for me, that I will die and I'll never know the answer to what happened to Kathy. But Roy died in 2017 at age 92, still in the dark about Kathy. Mm. In May of 2014, Kevin Katie got a message on the Facebook page, quote, I am from the Tobique First Nation, where Kathy 
was last seen. There have been a number of stories about this case, but nothing concrete. I would be happy to be of assistance to you if needed. We really do hope that she is found and that justice is served to the man who murdered her. When Kevin talked more to this person, they said, she was brought here by someone and another girl. Some people said they had seen her walking with this man on a dirt road towards the woods, which are not developed. That was the last time they seen her. A few days later, someone wrote, Hey, Kevin Katie, I read an article about the missing woman, Kathy Moulton, and it was the first I'd ever heard of her case, or so I thought. Then I seen that Reed Pearlie was involved, and it sparked a memory of a story one of my mom's old friends had told her while I eavesdropped. I remember this story because it made me afraid of him. Brent has since passed away as he was sick with AIDS, but I believe this story to be true. So here's the story as I remember it. Brent was drinking with Reed, and they ran out of alcohol, so they decided to walk the New Brunswick Trail down to town to get to the liquor store. On the way back, they stopped at a plot along the walking trail, which he said was land-owned by Reed's uncle. They sat there and drank for a while, and Reed started talking about a girl he met, Overcross, which means Maine. He pointed to an area not far from where they were sitting and told Brent that that was where he had buried her. Brent, having been told this, was understandably freaked out and thought Reed was going to murder him as well. Mm. I thought I would share this with you because I think the woman he was talking about that day was Kathy Moulton. I've noticed you worked on her case at one point. I really hope this little bit of information can be of some help, although the only person who can confirm this, that this happened, is deceased. By 2015, Kevin Katie was a licensed private investigator, and so was Tom Joyce. They continued to work on the case. Kevin learned through contacts on the reservation that several people had seen Reed Pearlie dragging a crying girl up a road in the fall of 1971. A person who lived near the spot Kathy was seen being dragged up the road said the ghost of a crying white girl started appearing to her young children a few years after that incident. Mm. The ghost continued to appear for for years. Also a few years after Reed was pulling the crying girl into the woods, the same person, the one that said the ghost was visiting, told Kevin Katie that their dog brought home a human skull. They didn't report it because they assumed it was from an old burial plot. Mm. The skull was tossed in the communal dump and lost forever. Thanks. The case of Kathy Moulton seems to be in the hands of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police now. Kim Higgins, Kathy's younger sister, told the Portland Press-Herald in a recent story about the 50th anniversary of Kathy's disappearance, quote, For sure somebody knows. There are probably still a handful of people alive on this earth who know exactly what happened to Kathy. They know where she is, where her body is. They know, for whatever reason, they have chosen not to come forward yet. The case is sad, and if it's true... What happened to Kathy, that she was alive long enough for someone to save her, it's frustrating. Her sister Kim told the Press Herald, More and more has been learned over the years that shows that Kathy might have been able to be saved and found if different actions were taken in the moment. We went through our stages of feeling let down, disappointment, frustration, anger, sorrow. And there's always the question, if any of us had pushed harder, had done more, would it have made a difference? Claire, Kathy's mother, quoted in Kevin Katie's book in 2012, I have always held out hope that maybe somehow she has amnesia as a result Mm -hmm. of a beating or something, and she is alive and has a life and doesn't know who she is. You never forget. I mean, every day I pray that somehow, somewhere we'll find her. It's a nightmare. We've been living with this for a long time now. Our house had a sun parlor in the front, and every day I used to go out in the parlor and look up and down the street expecting to see her show up. I 
just couldn't believe she wouldn't be coming home. I kept doing it right up till a year ago when we moved. At this point, we're concerned whether we'll ever know what happened to her before we die. And that is the end of hey. my report. When you think about it, if police, if they've found out about Lester, well, let's find out where he is, talk to him, see if he knows where she is. I know. Well, it seems like if they had talked to her friend. Right. It sounds they, like they didn't do anything didn't do in anything. 1971. They filed the missing person report and then they didn't do anything. Like, they although really didn't do anything. anything that was done was done by her father. I know. In, in 1971. And if they had just talked to her friends, you know, and when parents say this is abnormal, she wouldn't take off. All she had with her was her purse, you know, and she didn't have I a know. lot of money. She had to get money from her mom for the bus. I know. She had money at home, you know, babysitting money. Right. But it's not like she just took off. I know. That's the thing. She and, and also, I'm always frustrated by even if. People are like, okay, she did run away. Any minors who disappear like that should be considered people who need to be brought home. Yeah, who are in danger. Whether they ran away, because they're, they're vulnerable and in danger, um, whether they deliberately left or not. I know. You know, she had plans for that night. I can't imagine that she wanted to go on some road trip to Aroostook County with Lester. I know, and she had her brand new skirt that she was going to wear. Going to wear to the dance. And, and also, it would be interesting to know more about the relationship. It sounds like she was controlled. I'm that sure. She couldn't, she didn't feel free to leave. She didn't feel free to ask for help. But it doesn't sound like she was up there having a lot of fun and enjoying herself. I know. I When I was reading the part where she was sitting in the car all the time and right. not leaving and combing her hair. There's something wrong with her. Right. She was traumatized. Who knows what had happened right. to her? Why was that guy Reed holding onto the back of her neck? Right. That makes me wonder if her stupid boyfriend was allowing him. He's obviously to a rapist. Rape her. Yeah. He's a horrible rapist. Right. And maybe Lester sold her That's to, what I to wonder. the pearlies. Because he was always wanting to do stuff for money. You know? I just wonder. It makes you wonder. Like, why would he bring her up there? Bring her home or bring her, drop her off in Bangor Well, or I'm something. wondering, he knew Reed. They're in the car and Reed says, you know, I want a chick. And Lester goes, oh, hey, wait, there's Kathy. And Reed's like, pick her up. I want to have a chick to do stuff with. Who knows well, what you know, hold was, Reed might have had on Lester. It kind of reminds me. I remember one time I was um, probably about 18, and my neighbor said he'd lend me the car to go to the store or something. Where were you like, living? I was in Portland. I was mm -hmm. living in an apartment. Some friend of his was visiting, and he and this friend and me were going to go to the store, and I was going to drive. And at the last minute, just his friend went, and his friend was really creepy. I was pissed. And when I got back, I said, why did you leave me with your friend alone? I don't even know him. And he's like, oh, at the last minute, he told me he didn't want me to go. And, and that's the way right. sometimes people are. Yeah. It's like, well, you know your friend's a creep. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I know he's kind of creepy. For all we know, you know, Reed could have said, hey, if you you bring her up up north, there are ways to make money, but you have to bring her with you if... Could be just that stupid Lester didn't plan things out and was like, oh yeah, I'll go up there and come back. And then he realized, oh shit, I stole this car. Right. I can't go back there. What am I going to do with her? And since it was 1971, we have no way to know. It's, it's a sad story, but it's another yet another example of how... 
it, that shit isn't taken seriously. No. If um, the cops had actually nosed around up there, who knows how long she was alive, maybe they could have talked to the same people and found well, stuff out. that woman, Millie, and her sister, Donna, Kathy and, was at least alive for a few days. While and also, that was on our side of the border in Mars mm-hmm. Hill. Once Kathy was over in Canada, especially if she was on First Nation land, yeah. they're not going to be able to do much but if they just said okay we'll start asking around who knows and the thing is they were there for a few more weeks that right. um after kathy left they were there to the end of the right the, at least two more weeks so well, it doesn't sound like anyone was looking for that stolen car very hard either no or but, connect the, the things they didn't right connect him. well because nobody knew she was with him right no one knew he was her boyfriend except her friends and they right. didn't ask her friends and right. her friends probably didn't think anything of it but it was also like you said with joyce mclean it's the cops job to figure out what's important right and, who and they probably to. didn't even talk to her friends right it, which is it, ridiculous it, because no matter what they think happened to her they're the ones who know what her life is you know Oh, it's so frustrating. Anyways. It is sad. It's a sad story. Yes, speaking of frustrating, I have uh, an NNW recommendation. (laughs) And I wrote this out. I know our listeners are not used to me doing this because I want to keep my thoughts in order. I know we have sometimes gotten criticisms that we quote unquote read things. Yes, we do. Yeah. <laughs> because we you know, write them down. the alternative. We're not actors. Well, often you get the alternative, but we're not professionals. We're not actors. No, but the alternative is us rambling incoherently. Right, which people often get. And so what I'm saying is I did write this down. Oh, I get what you're saying. I, I am reading from, for the most part, I will, from something written down, but that okay. doesn't mean it's not my original thoughts and I didn't write it, which I think is the implication sometimes oh, yeah. when people complain about us reading things. Whatever. So okay. anyway... I'm doing my NNW on the Netflix four-episode series, Monsters Inside, The 24 Ooh. Faces of Billy Milligan. Ooh. No relation, of course, to our brother, Billy Milliken. Milliken. Ha, ha, ha. I read the book this is based on, The Minds of Billy Milligan, yes. 40 or so years ago when it came yes. out. I was skeptical then, but mm-hmm. I didn't have the tools and the knowledge that I do now to understand, I think some of it I just sensed, and some of it seemed like bullshit. But now, I was skeptical that now I'm pissed off. Oh. So here's a quick synopsis. Milligan, who lived in Ohio, had an abusive childhood. It included physical abuse and possibly, but not definitely, sexual abuse. He committed four rapes in Columbus, Ohio, I think in 1978. I should have written down the year. Well, he's being held on these rapes because he was found out pretty early because he had a record. He left uh, fingerprints on one of the cars and boom. And they were four rapes in very quick succession within days of each other in the Ohio State University area. While he was being held, somehow it comes out, and I use comes out in quotes, that he has multiple personality syndrome. A total circus ensues that I'll talk more about my rating. But suffice it to say, he's found not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh. Is in a mental hospital, putting his psychiatrist through their paces. He escapes, enabled by his family and one really stupid, gullible friend that gets way too much airtime. He very likely killed a guy before he went back in. He finally gets out after 10 years, very likely kills at least another guy. And finally dies in his, I can't remember how old he was, 50s or 60s, with a lot of people still believing his crap. 
it's obvious where I stand, and I'll tell you why and how Ooh. as we go through the NNW. Okay. All right. Okay, bad reenactments. There are some slight reenactments. I'm not taking anything off. They're just those quick kind of flash ones. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have people acting out a scene like in the bad shows. And I will say that they are very true to the era, the 70s ones and stuff. Everything from the cars to the clothes to the hairdos look right. So that reenactments are not a problem. Narrative cliches. There are some minor annoyances, including that B-roll stuff we talked about last episode. You know, the people sitting down. Uh, yeah. and But I'm not taking anything off because there's plenty of fish to fry. Ooh. Racial gender obtuseness. I'm taking away a point for gender obtuseness. First of all, four women are raped, but that's given pretty short shrift as we get into this documentary. After three hours and maybe about 45 or 50 minutes of the show, a couple of people mentioned the whole, you know, oh, the victims have been forgotten and all this, but that's the only nod the show gives to that. So they have people saying the victims are forgotten. Mm. But also, a big issue, it turns out that Billy's sole female alter of his multiple personalities, who of course is a lesbian, is the one that committed the rapes. Oh, please. Because she wanted love and should have given the shrinks at the time and the ones talking now food for thought. He plays her as all sensitive and wanting to be close and caring with someone and the others don't understand. But obviously, rape is an act of extreme violence. The majority of them committed by men against women. Mm -hmm. It's a way to control, humiliate, and minimize someone. It's not someone seeking love. I consider this gender obtuseness not only on all the shrinks on the show... But also the documentarians themselves who did nothing to have someone counter this obvious issue. Mm. So it's minus one. Lack of good visuals. I'm taking away half a point. Since Billy was a media sensation, there were plenty of visuals and good ones. He was also videotaped, having going from one personality to oh, another. Geez. But I'm taking off half a point because they had the numerous, way too many talking heads sitting in some really weird places. And while this could go under storytelling, I have a lot more to say there, so it's going here. For instance, his sister, who they have in a variety of places throughout the series, a lot of it in time she looks to what, at least my Catholic mind, looks like a congregational church, where she's sitting in a pew and they're like whitewashed pews and there's white walls. There's, There's like a stained glass window, but it's odd. They have some people crammed into really tight spots, like in an alcove, a book filled alcove in a library and stuff. And there's a former reporter who looks like he's in a bank vault talking through this <laughs> opening in it. Some of it may be in former Ohio mental institutions, but they don't say. And it's very distracting and unexplained. So I'm taking away half a point. Mm, okay. okay, missing pieces. Okay, here we go. Uh-oh. I'm taking off an unprecedented three point. And I'm three just... Three points? I'm, yeah. And we, and we can do that because it's our thing. And I'm going to yes, list. You can do whatever I'm just going to list some stuff, and it won't be everything, but it'll be the things that have bothered me the most. Okay? okay, I'm trying to be efficient with this. First of all, one major issue with this documentary is that while they have some voices countering the whole multiple personality syndrome thing, they dance around it, and they'll have a whole bunch of people who still, in this day and age, think it's real. They'll have one of the voices who doesn't, and then they plunge right back in, making it look legit. The voices who don't believe it's true, I'll talk more about that in storytelling, they're not used as well as they could be. I don't think I can emphasize enough 
to those of you who weren't around, how big the book and made-for-TV movie Sybil was mm. when we were teenagers. Oh, yeah. It's estimated or that younger. one... We were younger than... Okay, go ahead. Go I ahead. was a teenager. The book came out in 1973, and the made-for-TV movie with Sally Field chewing up the scenery, but she won an Emmy, as Sybil and Joanne Woodward, who played Eve in The Three Faces of Eve, was Dr. <laughs> Connie Wilbur, her doctor. It's estimated that one out of five Americans saw that movie, and the book sold millions and millions and millions of copies. I can remember... I can still remember me and my friend Liz Nichols after the movie was on TV, like making fun of like the enema scene. Hold it in, hold it in. <laughs> but I shouldn't, I shouldn't laugh. The documentary about Billy Milligan references Sybil, but doesn't say once that it's been largely discredited over the past two decades. Even before the awesome book Sybil Exposed yes, came out 10 years fun. ago by Debbie Nathan, who does everything that this documentary does not, it was pretty clear that a lot of Sybil was a fiction and that was documented. And that's a discussion for another day, but I'm not making up the fact that Sybil was a fiction. The woman existed, but you should read Sybil Exposed, but yes. it, it became clear it was not what it seemed. And the Billy Milligan Doc, <laughs> lawyers on both sides use Sybil as a kind of textbook on multiple personalities, which blows my mind. Okay, that was in 1978 when they had no clue, but this documentary, which references Sybil often in the first couple episodes, does not say once that it was found out largely to be a fiction. And that's not a secret. That's not something people don't know. Later editions of Sybil actually had a disclaimer in it. Mm -hmm. Worse, there's one scene in the documentary, and they have the lawyer talking now, uh, one of the prosecuting lawyers. Well, you know, they brought us in, and there he was with his multiple personalities. Yeah, I was skeptical, but then when I saw it, wow, you know, and I read Sybil, and blah, oh, blah, blah. Geez. And this is now getting taste the guy saying it. <laughs> Worse, at the time they brought in Dr. Connie Wilbur, Sybil's doctor, the woman's real name was Shirley Mason, the real Sybil, to decide yes. if Milligan has multiples. She was nearby in Kentucky at this point and was making a career out of multiple personality yes. disorder with the fame from Sybil. And again, they had no clue back then, but her work has been completely discredited exactly. since then. Think kind of climate change versus the few scientists who deny it. She would mm. be akin to the climate deniers. In the documentary, they say there are psychiatrists who, who don't believe in multiple personality disorder. The truth is that most psychiatrists don't believe in multiple personality disorder. And it's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of the sham that people like Dr. Wilbur went through to create this situation. Mm -hmm. The documentary says nothing about her being discredited. By the way, in 1963, she co-authored a book about how homosexuality was caused by an overbearing mother and a weak father, mm. and it could be cured. That used no scientific backup. She became semi-famous for that. It's common knowledge that she exploited Shirley Mason yes. for 20 years. Shirley Mason actually had, it turns out, a physiological problem that caused tremors, hallucinations, and other things that it turns out Dr. Wilbur knew about, but Dr. Wilbur just had tunnel vision and was set on multiple personalities. And I won't go into that whole thing because there's a lot to say about Billy Milligan, but four years 
into Sybil's quote-unquote treatment, she wrote Dr. Wilbur a lengthy letter explaining how she had just made everything up and blah, blah, blah. And Dr. Wilbur said, well, that's just one of your alters mm-hmm. writing that letter. Frequently, the hypnosis and drugs that are used, including the ones used on Billy Milligan, they aren't truth like they use sodium pentothal on him. It's not quote-unquote truth serum. It makes people be uninhibited, but that doesn't mean the stuff they're saying is true. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is fantasy. The more creative people are, or the more they're led, the more stories they'll make up, which psychiatrists know, and it's damning that this show didn't say one word of that. And as I said, granted, there are some talking heads who discredit multiple personality disorder in the film. Weirdly, four of them are French and speak French, which I'll get more into more in storytelling. You know, they have subtitles and I watch with them anyway, but the way they express themselves and everything, it doesn't come out right clearly and say this is bullshit and everybody knows it. They scatter the people who discredit multiple personality syndrome around and don't really address it forcefully. And most of the video from back then and all the people now, including his siblings, who are very smart, articulate people still think multiple personality disorder is a thing, even though it's not. Well, they do talk about multiple personality disorder not being as credible as it used to be. Some of these, the few talking heads against it, they don't say, at least that I could see, that it was downgraded in the DSM, the big Bible of psychiatric disorders, to the point that insurance won't cover treatment for Mm. it, though they do have info on when it was first included. And it's been downgraded ever since to the point now where it's put with kind of spells and things that are not considered real. Well, some people, most of them lay people in the documentary, refer to Billy as narcissistic or sociopath or psychopath. They don't have a psychiatrist talking about Mm. what he may really have been, what may really have been an issue, and how he could have fooled people into thinking he had multiple personality disorder. Yes, people do say he's manipulative, he's a narcissist and stuff, but they don't have any psychiatrists talking about how somebody like him, what tools they have to manipulate people. Um, They don't talk about what his real diagnosis should have been because the documentary, even though it gives lip service to people not believing him multiple personality disorder, it seems bent on making us believe it really exists. When the film is showing the early stages of him being found to have multiples, it leaves a lot out about how they came about, how he was diagnosed, what methods were being used to bring them out, etc. And these are personalities, while his friends did say he was odd and sometimes talked in a British accent, which is not actually something that is an indication of multiple personality (laughs) disorder. Sybil actually, I mean, Shirley Mason used to do that too. And other people who have never been diagnosed do it because they're messing around or they are just people who do things like that. People never saw signs of a multiple personality disorder until all of a sudden he had it after he was charged with raping four women. Well, part of the myth of multiples is that it resulted from severe childhood trauma. Dr. Wilbur and others would actually end up making stuff up for people to get them to admit to, Mm -hmm. to put it bluntly, if they didn't feel they had trauma or enough trauma, and planting it in their minds so then they were hypnotized hypnotized or given the sodium pentothal, they would remember trauma they never had. The film takes at face value that Billy suffered severe sexual abuse. It's clear he had a stepfather who was physically abusive, 
and he took the brunt of it uh, rather than his older brother and his sister who were also abused. And there may have been some sexual abuse, but they go from a childhood friend who was 10 or 11 seeing something at a barn and extrapolating sexual abuse from it. And she's very traumatized by it, but this is 50 or more years later. And from that, they make the documentary makes this leap to that he was severely, like, daily sexually abused. I'm not diminishing that there was possible sexual abuse. I'm not saying he had it or not. But the account of possible sexual abuse that was brought up by one childhood friend who may or may not have seen something in a barn isn't looked into very deeply. Obviously, Billy will say things happened, but that's part of his gig. The possible sexual abuse the childhood friend saw the aftermath of or something in a barn is weirdly similar to one that was one of the fake stories that's documented as fake that was accounted in Sybil. But yet the show takes this friend's account and makes it a reality, leaping from this to saying he was sexually abused. And Sybil was so hugely popular right then, I'm sure Billy could have learned a lot about what he needed to say or do. And the shrinks, including Wilbur, when they think they have another multiple, are very accommodating to yes, that. Yes, they are. And the documentary never makes that point. This was only a couple years, two years after the Sybil movie came out, which one out of every five people in America watched when it was first on, and then it was on many times. And where are the victims? This is another hole. The show gives lip service to the victims being forgotten. But if it was going to be more than superficial, the actual documentary would have been about how he scammed the system to get out of four rape charges, four aggravated rape charges, rather than three plus hours that basically makes people think his multiple personality syndrome could have been real and a lackluster attempt to make it seem, "Eh, maybe it wasn't, but we're going to tell you it was. And even if we accept for 30 seconds multiple personality disorder is real, Everyone is acting like there are actual, like, other people inside of him. (laughs) People back then were, and people now are. And if they had even just read Sybil, they would know that, in reality, all of those quote-unquote alter personalities are aspects of Billy. So the bottom line is, he still raped four women. Mm -hmm. Which no one back then seemed to get, and no one now seems to get. Though his two siblings, who seem like, as I said, very smart and nice people, condemn the rapes, they, and no other defenders, and I use that term loosely, seem to understand that it was still Billy who raped them and not a lesbian alternate personality. There were lots of minor things. For instance, the rape started out as robberies, supposedly, according to the alter personalities. Mm-hmm. But his Serbo-Croatian alter, oh, yes. Reagan, who spoke with a heavy accent, just started to do the uh, robberies. But then the lesbian alter, Adelena, took over for the rapes. No mm-hmm. one bothered to ask the victims that I can tell, apparently, if the guy at first, the rapist at first, had a heavy Eastern European accent when he was trying to rob them before the rapes. And actually, the accounts of the rapes don't sound like they started out as robberies. It sounds like they started out as rapes with a robbery as a benefit. All it says is vaguely that his victims thought he was odd acting. Yeah, he was a crazed serial rapist, and I wonder how much experience they'd had with someone like that. 
a serial rapist obviously is going to have something wrong with him and probably not act normal. Another thing is that someone points out with wonder, and this is nowadays, that he had EEGs done and they all came out differently for all his personalities. What they don't mention on the documentary is it's common knowledge that EEGs for one person are frequently different depending on the circumstances, what that person has going on, their state of mind, and everything else. And if they'd asked one doctor about that... <laughs> They would have, and the people who are making excuses for him, like there's a guy when he had um, escaped from the mental hospital and went up to Washington State where his, his brother was across the border in Vancouver, British Columbia, and his brother helped him get a place and all this mm. in Washington State. Um, it's pretty obvious that Billy uh, murdered a guy in another apartment, and you can watch the documentary to see why it's obvious. But, of course, people are like, yeah, it was his altar, one of his altars oh, that God. must have killed him, not Billy. He did things like afterwards he sold the rights to his story to people, obviously just a scam to get money. So when James Cameron wanted to make a movie, it's like all these other people already had the rights. <laughs> Another, and this could go either sto storytelling or missing pieces, but I'll put it missing pieces. A lot of people refer to him as though like rapist was just another personality mm. and nobody i mean his siblings at various points late in the documentary do say we abhor the fact that people were raped we don't support people being raped blah 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 but nobody even comes close to mentioning the fact gee this guy is charged with four aggravated rapes and could go away for a long long time maybe he's doing this so he won't have to no shit somebody does mention how many years he could get but it's more like in the in the context of oh this poor guy with this disorder you know if he's found guilty he could get all these years and I don't want to sound like I'm minimizing mental health issues he obviously had them but it wasn't multiple personality disorder storytelling mm -hmm. I'm taking away three more points like I said, the documentary does have people who say multiple personality disorder is not legit, but they're scattered throughout when the huge majority of the documentary is people who obviously even now believe it. Many of these skeptics are speaking French, and the subtitles are hard to understand in that they speak in like just their language and word usage when it's translated to English is a lot of it. It's hard to get what the point is. They have an American professor, a kind of handsome older man, who talks about it being discredited. But a lot of what they use from him is also not to the point. And I can't help but wonder if using four French-speaking skeptics when they could have found hundreds, I'm sure, of American psychiatrists to speak against it, was a ploy by filmmakers to lessen the impact of the fact that multiple personality syndrome has been discredited. Oh, we're going to use French people. Oh, people won't really pay that much attention to what they're saying. We don't have any Americans except for this professor. So maybe we can sneak by that actually this thing has been discredited because it'll take away from the impact of what we think our story is. Every time they have someone who's a skeptic, they go right back to people who nowadays believe it's a real thing and go back to showing the videos of him talking in oh, his geez. Arthur with the British accent and Reagan with the Serbo-Croat accent and everything. They give way too much airtime to this friend of his, Jim Murray, who was obviously manipulated by him and helped him escape across state lines. At one point he goes, well, I never felt threatened by him. And I'm like, yeah, because you aren't a woman he could rape. No the guy shit. made local soap operas, and after Billy was out of the hospital, he cast him and them. Billy was out on probation, but ended up going back in. But he cast him 
because he wanted people to see that there was more to him than just a rapist. People just glibly act like this whole rape thing just doesn't matter. Maybe the filmmakers were figuring we'd see how clueless and manipulated this guy was, but the amount of airtime he gets is way out of whack. He also misrepresents a lot. For instance, he says even though he wasn't afraid of Billy, one time when he was hiking, it kind of gave him the creeps, and he was never alone with him again. But then, Mm. when Billy escapes, he drives him all the way from Columbus, Ohio, to Denver, Colorado, so obviously on their road trip they were alone together. They end the four-part documentary with the childhood friend who saw the thing at the barn. And I'm not saying he wasn't sexually abused or she didn't see something, but they were maybe 10 or 11 years old. And I've learned a lot, especially from rereading, which I spent all last night doing Sybil Exposed, about how memory can be manipulated. Oh, yes. And she may believe what she saw, but the very final scene of this four-part documentary is her sobbing and saying that if she had gone to police when she saw that, maybe none of this would have happened. Mm. And for one thing, even if she did see something and went to police, that they probably wouldn't have done anything. It would have been yeah. her word against his stepfather's. But by ending it that way, I feel like they're underlying the tie to the possible child abuse and connecting the dot mm-hmm. that he obviously had it and did it, because why end it that way otherwise? Wouldn't it have been great if the documentarians had 21st century psychiatrists who believe what we believe now in 2021, talking about what Milligan's likely psychological issues were and how everyone 40 years ago was duped? The few voices that don't believe him, as I said, are drowned out by the drumbeat of people who do did, and this point is never really made, and when it should have been the entire point of the documentary. At the very end, his niece says on his deathbed he confessed to her that he had killed people and done very bad things. But that's Hmm. almost an afterthought, and it doesn't go very far to undoing the foundation the documentary established in its first three hours and 55 minutes. So, in short, the documentary took a total wrong turn, buying into a concept long discredited and running with it without any of the information that's been known for the past two decades, and once again allowing Billy Milligan to control the narrative and basically get away with rape. The most criminal thing about this documentary is that four women were raped, and God knows how many other people he might have raped. They act like it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to a documentary that shows how he managed to manipulate everyone and how Cornelia Wilbur, the doctor, promoted and popularized a now hugely discredited syndrome that actually was the roots of the satanic panic, believe it or not. And for a very brief period of time through Sybil, and it's caused a lot of injustice in this world. The reason for the minus three is that by telling the story the way they chose to tell it, And once again, disrespect the rape victims and marginalize what happened to them. They do nothing to forward discussion on mental illness, how it manifests, how it's treated, and how it and crime are tied together, particularly crime against women. It's criminal, as I said, what they did. It makes people's understanding take a huge step back. Right now, it's one of the most watched documentaries Mm -hmm. on Netflix, and people think it's all true. So that was minus three for that. Freshness, it is that. Here's a story that people our age all heard of because of that book, The Minds of Billy Milligan. And I won't even go into that and the farce that that author, which they give him too much credit. But I bet it's new to a lot of people. So it is fresh. Repetitive. I'm taking away half a point. They keep showing certain scenes of him when he was being videotaped by the psychiatrist. And they don't add anything to what's going on in the narrative except for try to make it look like he had multiples. Beating the drum, I'm taking away a point. 
The amount of people who believe he had multiple personalities and their defense rationalization of it, even now, is frustrating mm. given the lack of legitimate information in this documentary that shows that these people just don't know what they're talking about and need to be educated. And this documentary would have been a chance to educate people on multiple personality disorder and what a load of shit it was. What mental health problems Billy Milligan may have had how mental illness is misunderstood and how mentally ill criminals are not do not get the help they get and he didn't in some ways get help he needed well he didn't in any way get help he needed but there was a lot of discussion this one doctor who didn't believe in multiples would send him back to this other hospital where he'd just be warehoused with the other mentally ill people and here he had multiple personalities he wasn't like all them but he mm. wasn't getting treated and um so anyway, I'm taking away a point for that. So I think it gets a 1.5, which I Ooh. think is the lowest rating. Probably I think I may have given some of these. And the thing is, I'm not saying not to watch it. It's entertaining to watch. I would have been entertained if I hadn't been so angry and frustrated. But educate yourself. Watch that and then read the book Sybil Exposed by mm -hmm. Debbie Nathan. It's a very superficial documentary and I can't help but feeling the documentarians had to have known what they were doing. And I think that they would argue, well, we did have people say it's a sham. And like the the guy who wrote the book, Daniel Keyes, who wrote The Minds of Billy mm -hmm. Milligan, yeah. you know, he goes, yes, he can speak Serbo-Croatian. You know, we had somebody come in and blah, blah, blah. Well, it turns out he couldn't. They had uh, much later somebody who spoke it talk to him in Serbo-Croatian and he couldn't. And people say, well, it's because his altar wasn't. Yeah. But it was Reagan, the Serbo-Croatian altar. He was trying to talk with. And then they said every time he the guy tried to talk to him in that, Reagan would go away and another altar would come. Exactly. And also, what people don't understand, too, it, in true, although it's a crack, but he would, even if his some of his altars didn't know Serbo-Croatian, Billy Milligan himself would have to know it exactly. for one of his altars to know it. And then it was like, oh, he wrote Arabic, blah, 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 and it turned out there was an Arabic prisoner that he had write the Arabic stuff for him. And somebody asked Billy Milligan about it at the time, and he's like, there are no Arabic prisoners in the Lima, Ohio State Hospital. But then it shows this interview with this guy, this Arabic guy, saying, yeah, I wrote his letters. So they did have, I'm not saying that they didn't, but I felt like the way they did it was just in this giving it lip service when the entire documentary should be, and it would have been a much better documentary. Here's how... People were scammed, allowing exactly. this rapist to get away with it. And um, he ended up murdering at least two men. There were domestic abuse issues after he was out. He obviously had mental health issues that should have been addressed. But it was not multiple personality disorder. And it bothers me, as you can see, that yes. this documentary is bringing this sham fiction to a whole new group of people, including whoever it was today who told you no, that you should watch it. And then they didn't. said, oh, you don't know things have changed. You, how, you know how things have changed? Everybody knows it's a fucking crock of shit, except for the people who made that documentary and the people who watch it. Okay. Well, I remember it was 30 years, almost 30 years ago, one of my professors saying how, you know, in the 70s, how when it 
was first talked about, it was supposedly so rare, and then he said everybody seemed to have a patient with it, and he th- he was skeptical of it, obviously. And Sybil Exposed, it says yes, the same I thing. Like, yeah. it, like, there had only been 200 cases, and they were all probably something else. Yeah, they were probably um, something else. And the and centuries before Connie Wilbur came along, and then all of a sudden there were and people coming out of yeah, the woodwork. Yeah, that's what my professor was like, you know, then it was like almost like a a cachet or something. Oh, well, right. I have a patient with it. Right. And I just wanted crap. to give a little plug for Sybil Exposed by Debbie Nathan, because it also shows... That's uh, really not good. To, totally, you know, I don't want to demonize Dr. Wilbur. It's about her, the woman, Flora Schreiber, who wrote Sybil, and about Shirley Mason, who was, quote-unquote, Sybil, and how really sexism and the limits to what women could do and the way they were treated for all three of them played a huge part in why Sybil ended up being written and how the things that led up to it happened. So it's a really interesting book on a lot of levels. Much more illuminating than the Billy Milligan documentary, but I'm sure um, will not as popular with the masses. So that's my NNW. Thank you. Someone should do a documentary on Sybil Exposed. Yes, they should. I think that this Billy Milligan documentary, and what I was hoping it would be, and I was disappointed, although I kind of had a feeling, would have been how people fell for this, and so how this rapist was allowed to get away with four pretty brutal rapes. And the women have been totally forgotten. Almost makes me laugh the way toward the end they say, well, yeah, you have a couple of people say, yeah, the victims have been forgotten, but the film itself helps do that. Granted, the first episode has a lot about the rapes happening, but then the rest of it is like this big excusing Billy Milligan for it because of this child abuse. And I just want to tell our listeners, while this episode is going up when it should, I'm going to Oregon to visit our sister Liz. So the episode that comes up after this, I'm not sure, might possibly be delayed. Hopefully it won't be, but I just want to warn people. Okay. Um, And, you know, they're probably still going to be clearing their ears out after my diatribe against the Billy Milligan documentary. And I guess that we've been talking for quite a long time. Yes. So we need to go, and I'll be in Oregon. Um, Liz and I are going to visit some scenes of the episodes she's done, and um, I'll put together something in our newsletter for our Patreon supporters. Okay. So is that everything? I think so. Okay, well, thanks for listening. Can I ask, and I'm just curious, what's the name of the reporter on the Portland Monthly story? Because it sounds like there's bad Uh, reporting. It's very bad and it's not well written. Grantland S. Rice. No, that can't be. Grantland S. Rice was a famous sports writer from the 20s and 30s. 1986 Watson so, fellow Grantland S. Rice has just returned from a year in Australia and New Zealand. Okay, so it's somebody with the same name. Whatever. Oh. It wasn't very well written, and yeah. a lot of the um, facts were not correct in it.